This morning, I I invite you to take God's Word and to turn in the New Testament to John's Gospel, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. A couple of Sundays ago, Shane stepped away from our series in Matthew to address the topic of God's power at work among His people and in His church. We looked at that section in Ephesians 3 where the Apostle Paul is praying for the church, and one of the requests that Paul makes in that particular passage is for the people of God, the the saints at Ephesus, to comprehend the love of Christ. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3 verse 18, I pray that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As Shane mentioned, this is not only a prayer, but it is also an invitation of sorts given to the church to explore the love of Christ. To seek to know in greater ways what is unknowable. To seek to comprehend the incomprehensible. As we begin this this week, this Passion Week, and as we anticipate our time together next Sunday and our focused uh, celebration on the resurrection of Christ, that is what I want us to do this, this morning. I want us to explore the love of Christ to consider the love of Christ. And John chapter 13 is undoubtedly a passage that draws our attention to that subject. Now, if you're not very familiar with this particular gospel, it is, of course, one of four spirit-inspired historical uh, accounts or narratives concerning mainly the person of Jesus and what Jesus taught and accomplished in his first coming. And it was penned by the Apostle John, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of Thunder, who was also one of the three most intimate associates of Jesus. In fact, John identifies himself in this book as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John was an eyewitness to, and he was a participant in Jesus' earthly ministry, And likely wrote 50 or so years later about the things that he witnessed, the things that he heard with his own ears and saw with his own eyes and touched with his own hands. Again, primarily things about this Jesus from Nazareth. To convince his readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man who was the prophesied Messiah and Savior of the world... He wrote to provide reasons for saving faith in his readers, and he wrote to assure those that do believe in Jesus that they would receive the divine gift of eternal life. Near the end of the book, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John mentions here these many signs of Jesus. Miraculous proofs that confirm who Jesus is. And this is one of the unique features of John's gospel. Uh, if you've ever read the other, other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, what you will notice is that John's, John's gospel is somewhat different from the others in form and substance. Some refer to the gospel of, jo- of John as the spiritual gospel because of the depth and the profundity of its truths. Others would claim that it is the most theological of the four with its large amount of didactic and discourse material in proportion to narrative. What is clear is that this gospel is organized in a unique way. The first half of it centers around seven miraculous signs selected to reveal Christ's person and to engender belief. This section includes chapters 1 through 12, and this first half is frequently called the book of signs focusing on Jesus' messianic signs for the Jews. The second half, chapters 13 through 21, is sometimes called the book of exaltation because it anticipates Jesus' exaltation with the Father subsequent to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So you have this series of messianic signs in the first 12 chapters Leading up to what is certainly the seventh and the most climactic sign, the raising of Lazarus, which foreshadowed Jesus' own resurrection. And then you have the triumphal entry, Jesus' formal presentation to Israel, and that final indictment of the Jewish people and their religious leaders, who witnessed these undeniable proofs of Jesus' deity and messiahship, but refused to believe. All of that to say John 13, this 13th chapter of John's gospel, is a turning point in the book. One commentator refers to chapters 1 through 12 as the signs of the Son of God, and the chapters that follow them as the secrets of the Son of God. Why? Because the first section of the gospel is mainly public, and the second section mainly private. This same commentator also states that the first half is full of controversy, whereas the second half is full of confidences, things Jesus would share with those closest to him. So as we come to John 13, this is what we must understand. The nation of Israel has rejected her Messiah. Some have believed in Jesus Christ and received eternal life. And John gives us the the, the record of the account of those, those interactions. But most have spurned the words of Jesus. Most have dismissed Jesus' claims. Most have hardened their hearts and denied Jesus' power. And Jesus now turns his attention to the apostles alone. It is the Thursday night of the final week of our Lord's life, which is called Passion Week. That is where we find ourselves in John 13. Right up against the the feast of the Passover, 
Jesus with the 12 in that uh, upper room in Jerusalem, some sort of of a, a borrowed or, or perhaps rented banqueting room atop some shop or large family dwelling. And for the next five chapters, John details much of what happens with Jesus and his disciples on that night, the night before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Truth so stunning and staggering that it reaches beyond our comprehension. Promises and pledges and commitments that Jesus unfolds that blow the mind. Words that were intimate. Words that were very personal. And what is the dominant theme that emerges in all of those words and in all of this time? It is none other than the love of Christ. The love of Christ. With so little time left in which to to crowd and to sum up all the counsel and all the comfort that Christ desired to have with his disciples before his departure, that was his focus. And it wasn't just the theme of his teaching to his disciples, it was also the subject matter of his intercession on their behalf in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. In fact, love is the most common word in this section of John. And there are more references to the Savior's love for his own here than anywhere in the Bible. Now, we won't take the time to to read or explain all that's in these chapters this morning. What we will attempt to do is to expand and to broaden and to deepen our understanding of the love of Christ by simply considering what John writes in the first verse of this section. Let me read it for us. John chapter 13, verse 1. This is from the English Standard Version. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. An amazing statement regarding the love of Christ. You'll notice that the main verb is really there at the end of the verse. He, Jesus, loved. He loved. And everything else in the verse tells us about that love. So what are some things that we can learn about this wondrous love, the love of Christ. Let me suggest three things for us to consider this morning. First, we learn something about the backdrop of Christ's love. The backdrop of Christ's love. Now, we've already mentioned a few of the details surrounding this period of time in the life of Jesus, but let's think about this a little more. John indicates that what happens next in chapter 13, specifically Jesus washing the disciples' feet, takes place before the Passover meal about to begin. But John also indicates that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, all along, Jesus has specified that his climactic hour determined by his heavenly father, had not yet arrived. That hour of his death and exaltation. 
For example, in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus, if you'll remember, responded to his mother Mary at the wedding feast with a statement about his hour and that that hour had not yet come. In chapter 7 of John, when the crowds were seeking to seize him, John writes in verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, the father's sovereign timetable and plan for his son would not allow it. In chapter 8 of John, we find a similar statement when Jesus was teaching in the temple. And John states that no one arrested him, arrested Jesus, because his hour had not yet come. But again, by the time we get to chapter 12, Jesus' public ministry to the masses has run its course. On the first day of the week, referred to as Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem in triumph to the enthusiastic shouts of the crowds, of the people, officially presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah. Of course, the Sanhedrin and and other Jewish leaders, according to Matthew 26, verse 5, wanted, wanted Jesus dead, but did not want him killed during the time of the Passover because they feared stirring up the multitudes with whom Jesus was popular. However, Jesus entered the city on his own time and forced the whole issue in order that it might happen exactly on the Passover day when the lambs were being sacrificed. As 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So all of these events were unfolding in God's perfect timing at the precise time foreordained from eternity, and Jesus knew it. That is why in John chapter 12, he answered Andrew and Philip in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then further down in verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And on that Thursday night, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart. Jesus knew what would happen over the next 24 hours. Jesus knew that he would bear the awful weight of of guilt for a world of sins that he did not personally commit. Jesus knew that he would suffer ruthlessly at the hands of cruel men and be nailed to a cross. Jesus knew that he would be subjected to the full measure of God's wrath against humanity's sin. That that was the terrible cup that he would be given to drink. 
These were literally the last hours before Jesus would die. And Jesus knew, according to John chapter 18, verse 4, all that would happen to him. He knew that the hour of his appointed death was at hand. But that wasn't all that Jesus knew. Chapter 13, verse 3 indicates that he knew the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That is to say, Jesus was fully aware of who he was, the incarnate Son of God who had come to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus knew where he was going. In chapter 17, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and began praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew it was death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. Back to the Father's throne, restored in glory as the God-man, exalted as the interceding high priest and sovereign Lord. Jesus was fully cognizant that lordship over the universe was his. But Jesus also knew a few other things. He knew what Judas's plans were for that evening. John 13, 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew his betrayer. And he knew precisely who among his disciples had been truly cleansed redemptively, according to verse 10. And he didn't just know that the 11 possessed saving faith, he knew their weaknesses. Jesus knew how much they struggled with pride. Jesus knew how much they struggled with selfishness and how often they failed to win those battles. They were ignorant. They were often dull, ambitious. They were sometimes cowardly. Jesus knew what they had done. And Jesus knew what they would do. He knew they would fail to initiate and offer to wash his feet or the feet of the others. Jesus knew that even after his demonstration of humility that the eleven would argue once again about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. We learn in Luke 22. Jesus knew that Peter would impulsively promise to lay down his life for Christ, John 13, 37. 
but that Peter would actually deny him three times before sunrise the next day and with cursing. Jesus knew that Philip would foolishly say to him in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. Jesus knew that his disciples would end up fleeing when the heat was turned up. That is the backdrop of Christ's love. The truth is that if we, if we knew what Jesus knew, we would have already given up on them. The betrayal, the unbelief, the suffering, the cup of God's wrath, we would have already quit. But not Jesus. In the face of all that, Jesus did not shrink back. Isaiah 50 verse 7 said, He set his face like flint. And fully knowing all that was coming, he did the unthinkable. He immersed himself in personal ministry to these men. He was consumed with the task of strengthening them, reassuring them, preparing them for the trial that they would soon face, as well as a lifetime of ministry that would follow. His heart was fixed on these men, serving them, pouring out promise after promise after promise. And everything that Jesus did that night demonstrated his love for them. Well, that takes us to the second thing that we can, I think, learn about the love of our Savior in this verse. Namely, the objects of his love. The objects of his love. Notice verse 1 again. Who are those in this verse... That John says Jesus loved. His own. His own who were in the world. Now you may remember what John wrote earlier in his gospel in the prologue section. In chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. John writes, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came, verse 11, to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That is to say, Jesus came to the place that he created and that he had a right to possess, and Jesus came to the nation to which he belonged, But the majority turned him away in rejection. Now that passage raises an important question. In chapter 13, verse 1, when it mentions that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, is it also referring to the Jewish nation or is it referring to something else? And I actually believe that it's, it's something else that, that is being referred to here. I think, I think what John means here is not 
the mass of lost humanity nor the Jewish people. Rather, he is referring to Jesus' own disciples. His own disciples. To think of it in contrasting terms, the world loves its own, right? This was in John chapter 15, verse 19. The world loves its own, but Jesus loves his own. So the object of the love of God in Christ in these chapters of John's gospel is not the lost world, but the people of God. The true disciples of the Messiah, the the community of the elect. That is clearly the focus of chapters 13 to 17. That is why Jesus in his prayer in chapter 17 verse 9 says to his father, I am not praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. What does that mean? That means that as Jesus prepared to lay down his life, he was preparing to give an atonement, not for the whole world, but for his own. Those whom the Father had given to him. That was the intent. That means that the truths contained in these chapters are not for everyone. They are for the Lord's people only. And that means that the objects of Christ's love in these chapters are not every person in general. They are those who have been given to Christ by the Father. They are the sheep of John 10, verse 11, that Jesus would lay his life down for. They are those born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, says John 1, 13. They are those to whom Christ gives eternal life, John 10, verse 28, who will never perish, And will never be snatched out of Christ's hand. What John declares here is that Jesus specifically loved them. Now there is a sense in which the love of God extends to all people. God loves the world. God loves fallen humanity. John 3.16, I think, makes that plain. And God loves his enemies. Matthew chapter 5 says that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And however much God stands in judgment over the world, he also presents himself in Scripture as the God who invites And commands all human beings to repent and desires that all men be saved. It is only necessary to say that the love of which we are speaking in John 13 is a special love, a saving love, as a result of which those who are 
Christ's own become his own and are kept by him. That is to say, God has set his his affection on the elect in a way that he does not set his affection on others. And there is a particular love that Christ has for his people. Christ loves his own. If you're a Christian, know this. It was God's effective, particular, electing love toward you that enabled you to see the sheer glory and power of Christ's substitutionary death on your behalf. By which you were reconciled to God. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Is it because you are so lovable? Was it your personality? Was it your witty conversation? Was it your smile? Was it your good looks? Was it your morals or your good behavior? Or perhaps your intelligence? What did 1 Corinthians say? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 5 verse 6? Christ died for the ungodly. The reality is, brothers and sisters, there is nothing in us to make us even remotely desirable. Or you say, maybe Christ loved you because you first loved him. Again, not a chance. Christ is not returning our love. His love is an initiating love, not a responsive love. And Christ certainly did not love you because of anything you could do for him. Because you and I had nothing to offer him that he needed or wanted. Nothing acceptable. So why does he love us? The only answer is the one that God gave to Moses concerning the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. The reason Jesus loves you is because he loves you. The reason that Jesus loves us is because Jesus loves us. And the only reason that Christ's people are his people is because of what Stephen Charnock called God's unaccountable sovereignty or the act of God's free pleasure. In other words, God loves us because he willed to love us. And we cannot penetrate beyond this. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1, that in love, 
God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. His is a sovereign, distinguishing love, said John Murray in his commentary on Romans. And Spurgeon applied this truth in, with his, sort of, his usual clarity and his usual wit. He says, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. A.W. Pink in his book, Attributes of God, in that chapter on God's knowledge, says this, The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, and yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. So the love of Christ for his own is a particular love. It is a sovereign love. We might also note that Christ's love for his own is an immutable love, a love that doesn't change. That is to say, his love ensures not a partial but a complete salvation. And if sovereign love is saving love, and if our salvation is not partial or incomplete, his love must be unchanging. Christ loves us immutably. He will not quit loving us. He will not grow tired of us. Jesus will not lose patience with us. And he certainly will not abandon us. For this reason comes the question of the Apostle Paul as he takes us to what Charles Hodge called the very summit of the Mount of Confidence. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8. Paul asks, and then follows a a list of possible enemies that might separate us but cannot. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the glorious love of Christ. And it's precise about its objects. Focusing on particular people with particular needs. And that leads us to, I think, the third thing we can learn about the love of Christ in John 13, 1, which is the extent of His love. The extent of His love. Notice the very last phrase. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them. I love this. 
This just stopped me in my tracks a few, a few months ago when I was reading. He loved them to the end. Ace telos in the Greek. And the question is, to the end of what? Certain, certainly the, the answer must include the end of the earthly life of Christ. Even the context suggests this. There were numerous hindrances to love, as we've noted, both on Jesus' part and on the part of the disciples during this time. Jesus knew clearly that his hour had come and that he was about to suffer and die. Jesus also knew that his disciples were thinking more about themselves than they were thinking about him. And yet he was not deterred. He loved them fully and unselfishly to the end of his life. Not merely seen in his humble service to them and washing their feet, but in his sacrificial death for them on the cross. In fact, there's a a notable lexical link between this verse and John 19.30 where Jesus said just before he gave up his spirit, tetelestai, it is ended. It is finished. Jesus loved his own to the end of his life. When he was able to say, my work of redemption is complete and the debt is paid. But Jesus also loved them to the end of their lives. Even though Jesus died before any of the other disciples... Yet after he rose from the dead, he bestowed his own spirit upon them and guided and preserved them until the time when each would go to be with him in glory. But this phrase, ace telos, doesn't merely mean to the end of Christ's life or even to the end of the lives of the disciples or our lives. Rather, it means to the very end. Or you could say this this way, to the end of ends, completely, perfectly, fully, both in terms of capacity and eternity. That is to say, as much as Jesus can love, that is how much he does love his own. And for as long as Jesus can love, That is how long he does love his own. You think about how quickly we give up on things. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things going on in my home, my personal life, tasks, tasks that that, that you begin, tasks that we start and never finish. Or you think about some, some resolution that we made at the first of this year that's already been abandoned. And that's not at all like the love of Christ. Jesus loves to the uttermost. He loves infinitely, both in capacity and time. His love for us has no limit and His love for us has no end.
And so we sing. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and the angels' song. This is the wondrous love of Christ. This is the love that the Apostle Paul invites us to explore. The deep, deep love of Jesus. John Stott, commenting on Ephesians 3.18, said this, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. I pray this morning that our comprehension of the incomprehensible has been stretched, expanded, and that our love for Christ has been stoked and enlarged and that that would lead us to greater praise and greater faithfulness. If you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, as you think about this one verse in John 13, would you consider the question, if this is the way in which Christ has loved us, shouldn't we love one another and fervently love him? The Apostle John would later write in his, his first epistle, in chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Wouldn't you agree with the words of that hymn by Isaac Watts? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God, help us to love as Jesus loved, unselfishly, without wavering. We have been especially blessed. But with most special privileges come equal special obligations. That is why Jesus said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, you've never believed on Christ, we plead with you not to spurn his love, not to reject the love of Christ. We understand that some people seem to have these days, very little difficulty believing in the love of God. They have far more difficulty sometimes believing in the justice of God or in the wrath of God or the truthfulness of God. God is love, but He's also light. And He will not wink at sin, even in the lives of His own people. He is, his love is holy. His love is pure. 
And we also understand that there are others who seem to have great difficulty believing in the love of God. Who think that they are somehow beyond saving. The truth is, everyone outside of Christ is dead in their sins. But, Paul says in Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. There is no sinner beyond the reach of God's love. Jesus Christ came and died in the place of sinners. And if Christ loves like this, how can you afford to be without such a great love? There is no love like it on earth. Only Jesus loves with a perfect and an everlasting love. One day you will stand before God whom you've offended by your sinful words and actions and your rejection of his grace. What will you do in that day if you refuse the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? What will you do without having him to stand by you and say, this is one of my own for whom I died, whose debt I have paid, who I have loved and will love to the end. Without the love of Christ, you will be lost forever. So we urge you to call upon him in humble faith. Christ will save you. Let's stand. Father, we are grateful, so grateful this morning for your glorious plan of redemption. A redemption, a salvation accomplished by your Son, the Lord Jesus, and a redemption applied by the Spirit. How marvelous is the love that you have given that we should be called the children of God. How wonderful is the love of Christ that motivated him to serve and to seek and to save. How able and how sufficient is the Holy Spirit who's been given to us and causes us to overflow with the love of God. Lord, we know that we could never repay you for this kind of lavish love, but what we desire to do is to humbly offer you a loving, obedient heart to possess and to exhibit a love of gratitude and thankfulness. Would you help us to receive the love of Christ, to be rooted in it, to be constantly growing in our comprehension and understanding of it, to return love for His love, that we would be more like Christ and that the world would see more of Christ in us. In His name we pray. Amen.